Section 8 of The Outline of Science, Volume 2. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Outline of Science, Volume 2, by J. Arthur Thompson. Chapter 11. How Darwinism Stands Today, Part 3. As Regards Heredity. Darwin was one of the first to show that the mysterious problems of heredity could be attacked scientifically, and his cousin, Sir Francis Galton, went much further. But it is unfortunate that neither of them knew anything about the Abbe Mendel, who published papers in 1865 which have revolutionized the whole subject. His work remained practically unknown till 1900. Mendelism There are three fundamental ideas in Mendelism. The first is the idea of unit characters, and this requires a little patience. By inheritance is meant what the living creature is, or has to start with, when it is represented by a fertilized egg cell. Now it has been discovered that an inheritance is, in part, built up of numerous, more or less clear-cut, crisply defined, non-blending characters, which are continued in some of the descendants as definite wholes, neither merging nor dividing. We may think of the color of the eye, the quality of the hair, the shape of the nose. Strictly speaking, what lies in the inheritance is not the character as seen in the adult, but a germinal representative, technically called a factor, or gene, of the character. The full-grown character, say the shape of the nose, is, as it were, a product of the geminal representative and the surrounding influences which operate during development. It is also necessary to understand that an adult character, like the quality of the hair, may be represented in the germ cell by several factors. Moreover, one germinal factor, for example, the initiative for developing dark pigment, may influence several characters in the adult. If a man has his fingers all thumbs, that is, two joints instead of three, this peculiarity, called brachydactylism, is sure to be continued in a certain proportion of his descendants, and we call it a unit character. The persistence of the Habsburg lip in the royal houses of Austria and Spain is a good instance of how a unit character comes to stay for many generations. Night blindness, or the inability to see in dim light, has been traced through a lineage since near the beginning of the 17th century, another illustration of the persistence of a unit character. We do not precisely know what the germinal factors of the unit characters are like, but in some cases it is known that they lie in linear order in the nuclear rods or chromosomes. In some instances, though it is impossible in a few words to explain how, we know what region of the chromosome the factor occupies. But the most important point is that the unit characters, or their factors, behave as if they were definite entities, like the radicals in chemistry, which can be shuffled about and distributed to the offspring in some degree independent of one another. Thus, in the lineage of the night-blind, it was not every individual that showed the peculiarity, but only a certain proportion in each generation. In his masterly work on Mendelism, Professor R. C. Punnett refers to a unit character as follows. Unit characters are represented by definite factors in the gamete or germ cell, which, in the process of heredity, behave as indivisible entities, and are distributed according to a definite scheme. The factor for this or that unit character is either present in the gamete or it is not present. It must be there in its entirety or be completely absent. 
The second fundamental idea in Mendelism is that of dominance. When Mendel crossed a purebred tall pea with a purebred dwarf pea, the offspring were all tall. So he called the quality of tallness dominant to the recessive quality of dwarfness, which the hybrid offspring kept, as it were, up their sleeve. The dwarfness is not expressed in the hybrid peas, but it must be part of the inheritance, for it reappears in a quarter of the progeny of the hybrids if these are inbred or allowed to self-fertilize. The Japanese have reared a race of peculiar waltzing mice, which have many strange habits, for example, of dancing round and round. If a Japanese waltzing mouse is crossed with a normal mouse, all the hybrid offspring are normal, the waltzing peculiarity being recessive to normality. But if these hybrid mice are paired together, some of their progeny are waltzers, in the proportion of one waltzer to three normals, which is called the Mendelian ratio. If one of the waltzers of the second generation pairs with another waltzer, the progeny are all waltzers, which shows that the factor for normal locomotion has disappeared from the inheritance along this line. It is a curious fact that one of these second-generation waltzers might be conscientiously sold in the market as a pure waltzer, although its parents were normal and one of its grandparents likewise. To return to the beginning, if a waltzing mouse is crossed with a normal mouse, all the offspring will be normal. Normality is dominant, waltzing is recessive. If these normal hybrids pair, their offspring will be 25% pure waltzers and 75% apparently normal mice. But of the 75% apparently normal, a third will be pure normals, yielding nothing but normals when bred with others like themselves. But the other two-thirds, although apparently normal, have, like their immediate parents, the waltzing character up their sleeve, for when they are paired together, they yield 25% pure normals, 50% apparent normals, and 25% pure waltzers. It is impossible to keep this clearly in mind without some schematic formulation, such as the above. In the case of the mice, the character of normal locomotion is dominant over the recessive character of waltzing, but it must not be supposed that the dominant character is necessarily the one nearest the normal type. Thus, a short tail in cats is dominant, somewhat imperfectly, to the ordinary tail, the appearance of extra toes in poultry is dominant to the presence of normal foretoes. Hornlessness in cattle is dominant to the presence of horns. Among the many characters which are now known to exhibit Mendelian inheritance, the following may be cited, the dominant condition being named first in each case. Normal hair and long angora hair in rabbits and guinea pigs. Kinky hair and straight hair in men. Crest and no crest in poultry bandless shell in the wood-snail, and banded shell, yellow cotyledons in peas and green ones, round seeds in peas and wrinkled forms, absence of awn in wheat and its presence, susceptibility to rust in wheat and immunity to this disease, two-rowed ears of barley and six-rowed ears, markedly toothed margin in nettle leaves and a slightly toothed margin, why one character should be dominant and another recessive is not known. A positive feature, like a banded shell in the snail, may be recessive, and a negative feature, like hornlessness in cattle, may be dominant. It should be noted that in many cases of Mendelian inheritance, the dominance in the offspring is not complete. Thus, if black Andalusian fowls are crossed with white ones, 
The progeny are blue Andalusians, a sort of diluted black. These blue Andalusians do not breed true. When paired together they yield 50% blues, 25% blacks, and 25% peculiar whites splashed with gray. The third fundamental idea in Mendelism is perhaps more difficult to grasp than the others. Mendel supposed that the hybrid between the tall P and the dwarf P produced two kinds of germ cells in approximately equal numbers, one contingent carrying the factor for tallness and the other contingent carrying the factor for dwarfness. In other words, each germ cell is pure with respect to the factor of any particular unit character. Suppose a long-haired rabbit crossed by a short-haired rabbit. The offspring will all be short-haired. But out of eight ova produced by a female hybrid offspring, four will have the factor for long hair and four the factor for short hair. Similarly, out of eight sperm cells produced by a male hybrid offspring, four will have the factor for long hair and four the factor for short hair. Suppose these hybrids interbreed, and the fertilization of the ova by the spermatozoa is fortuitous. Then two egg cells with the short hair factor will be fertilized by two sperm cells with the short hair factor yielding two quite pure, short-haired offspring. Two egg cells with the long hair factor will be fertilized by two sperm cells with the long hair factor, yielding two quite pure, long-haired offspring. Two egg cells with the short hair factor will be fertilized by two sperm cells with the long hair factor, yielding two impure, short-haired offspring like the hybrid parents. And finally, two egg cells with the long hair factor will be fertilized by two sperm cells with the short hair factor, yielding the other two impure short-haired offspring like the hybrid parents. So the result must be two pure short-haired offspring plus four impure short-haired offspring plus two pure long-haired offspring. If the impure short-haired rabbits are interbred, their offspring, the third filial generation, will show the same ratio, one to two to one, more and more exactly the larger the numbers dealt with. Germinal Continuity One of the great post-Darwinian advances is the recognition of the fact of germinal continuity, made clear by Galton and Feisman. While most of the material of the fertilized ovum is used to build up the body of the offspring, undergoing in a very puzzling way differentiation into nerve and muscle, blood and bone, a residue is kept intact and unspecialized to form the beginning of the reproductive organs of the offspring, whence will be launched in due course another organism on a similar voyage of life. The reproductive cells of any organism are the outcome of embryonic cells which did not share in the upbuilding of that organism, but continued in the germinal tradition unaltered. This is suggested clearly in a diagram slightly modified from one devised by Professor E. B. Wilson. Thus the parent is rather the trustee of the germplasm than the producer of the child. In a sense, the child is a chip of the old block. The old question was, does the hen make the egg or the egg the hen? The modern answer is that the fertilized egg makes the hen and the eggs thereof. The fact of germinal continuity explains the inertia of the main mass of the inheritance, which is carried on with little change from generation to generation, similar material to start with, Similar conditions in which should develop, therefore, like tends to beget like. As Professor Berkson puts it, life is like a current passing from germ to germ through the medium of a developed organism. 
As regards selection. When we are interpreting the past history of animals, we utilize factors which are seen in operation today, just as the geologist does when he is interpreting scenery. It is satisfactory, therefore, that post-Darwinian investigations have demonstrated some modern instances of selection at work. Let us take a simple case. The Italian naturalist Cisnola tethered some green mantises with silk thread on green herbage, and found that they escaped the eyes of birds. Similarly, when the brown variety was tethered on withered herbage, but green mantises on brown herbage and brown mantises on green herbage were soon picked off. Discriminate selection was at work. When we are concerned with making a good lawn, we may pursue two methods. We may eliminate the weeds, or we may foster by suitable tonics the growth of the grass. Similarly, in nature sifting, there is lethal selection, which works by eliminating the relatively less fit to given conditions of life. And there is reproductive selection, which works through the predominant increase of the more successful. Darwin never thought simply of natural selection. He always emphasized its manifold and subtle modes of operation. He saw, for instance, what some of his successors missed, that the sifting need not in the least involve a sudden cutting off of the relatively less fit, for a shortened life and a less successful family will in the long run bring about the same result as a drastic pruning. It should not be necessary to point out that the survival of the fittest does not necessarily mean the survival of the strongest or cleverest or best. It simply means fittest, relatively to particular conditions. The tapeworm is a fit survivor, as well as the golden eagle. Darwin realized what some of his successors have missed, that even slight peculiarities may be of critical moment when tested in relation to the complex web of life in which the creature has its being. This is very important in regard to the general progressiveness of evolution, that new departures are sifted in reference to a slowly wrought out and firmly established system of interrelations. See the article on interrelations. Sexual Selection Many male animals, such as stags, antelopes, sea lions, black cock, and spiders, fight with one another at the mating time, competing for the possession of females. According to Darwin, the strongest and, with some species, the best armed of the males drive away the weaker, and the former would then unite with the more vigorous and better nourished females, because they are the first to breed. Such vigorous pairs would surely rear a larger number of offspring than the retarded females, which would be compelled to unite with the conquered and less powerful males, supposing the sexes to be numerically equal. And this is all that is wanted to add, in the course of successive generations, to the size, strength, and courage of the males, or to improve their weapons. Descent of Man, 2nd edition, page 329. Similarly, there would be a premium on those male characters that are useful in the recognition and capture of the females. For example, large olfactory feelers in moths, and strong claspers in skates. The term sexual selection was used by Darwin to include all forms of sifting in connection with mating, but prominent among these was the preferential behavior of the female. Just as man can give beauty, according to his standard of taste, to his male poultry, so it appears that female birds in a state of nature have, by a long selection of the more attractive males, added to their beauty or other attractive qualities. In the courtship, which is often elaborate, the female selects in a literal sense. 
Darwin was well aware of difficulties besetting his theory of sexual selection, and his fellow worker Alfred Russell Wallace was one of his severest critics. There has to be proof that some of the males are actually disqualified and left out in the cold. But Darwin indicated that the sifting would work even if the less successful males were not entirely eliminated. Moreover, in some cases the female's preference goes to great lengths. Thus a female spider often kills a suitor who does not please her. It is difficult again to prove actual choice on the female's part, but there are undoubted cases of preferential mating, whatever the psychology of the process may be. Some critics, like Wallace, have pointed to the difficulty of crediting the female with a capacity for appreciating slight differences in the decorativeness, agility, or musical talent of her suitors. But the modern answer is simply that the accepted mate is the one that most strongly evokes the pairing instinct, and that it is not necessary to credit the female with any analytic weighing of the merits of the various males. The details must count if there is anything in the theory, but they may count not as such, but as contributing to a general impression of interesting attractiveness. To point out that certain masculine features, such as antlers, are congruent with the male constitution, just as certain feminine features, such as functional milk glands, are congruent with the female constitution, is getting behind the question of selection, to that of the origin of the variations which form the raw materials of the sifting process, an interesting line of inquiry which has been followed by Geddes and Thompson in their evolution of sex. Another important consideration arises when we think of the frequent intricacy and subtlety of the courtship habits, see Pycraft's Courtship of Animals. There must be some deep racial justification for this. Bruce has suggested that the female's coyness is an important check to the male's passion, which tends to be too violent. Julian Huxley has suggested from his fine study of the crested grebe that the courtship ceremonies establish emotional bonds which keep the two birds of a pair together and constant to each other. Conclusions 1. If Darwinism means the general idea of evolution or transformism, that higher forms are descended from lower, then it stands today more firmly than ever. 2. If Darwinism means the particular statement of the factors in evolution, which is expounded in the origin of species, the descent of man, and the variation of animals and plants under domestication, then it must be said that while the main ideas remain valid, there has been development all along the line. Darwinism has evolved, as every sound theory should. 3. In regard to the raw materials of evolution, there is greater clearness than in Darwin's time as to the contrast between intrinsic variations of germinal origin and bodily modifications imprinted from without, and there are grave reasons for doubting whether the latter do as such affect the race at all. There is still to be heard the slogan, Back to Lamarck, but there can be no return to any crude Lamarckism. If the individual gains and loses, the individual indents and prunings really count as such in racial evolution. It must be in some subtler way than is suggested by the giraffe getting its long neck by ages of stretching, or the deep-sea fish becoming blind by generations of darkness and disuse. There should be no haste to close any door of reasonable interpretation, still less of experimental inquiry, but there is at present among zoologists widespread agreement with Sir Ray Lancaster's pronouncement that one of the notable advances since Darwin's day 
has been getting rid of the Lamarckian theory of the transmission of individually acquired characters or imprinted bodily modifications. Of course, counting of heads is no argument, but the facts are not at present in favor of the Lamarckian view. But we may perhaps look for an evolution of Lamarckism as well as of Darwinism. 4. Darwin based his theory of evolution very deliberately on the fluctuating variations which are always occurring. Given time enough and a constant sieve, the struggle for existence, will not nature achieve more or less automatically what man reaches purposely in his breeding of cattle and cultivating of wheat? But modern Darwinism, while holding fast to this, welcomes the demonstration that brusque discontinuous variations or mutations are common, and that they are very heritable. All of a sudden, it appears, the sporting evening primrose may produce an offspring which is potentially a new species. 5. Darwin meant by fortuitous variations that he could not give any formula for the causes of the novelties he observed. No doubt he also meant that the organism in varying was not aiming at anything. And yet he laid great stress on what he called the principle of correlated variability, an idea of great importance, that when one part varies, other parts vary with it, being members one of another, as St. Paul said. In other words, a particular germinal change may have a number of different outcrops or expressions, but the more correlation there is, the less reasonable will it be to speak of fortuitousness, and one of the changes since Darwin's day is the recognition that variations are often very definite, just as they are among crystals. 6. Another change from Darwin is the Mendelian idea of unit characters, which behave like entities in inheritance. They are handed on with a strong measure of intactness to a certain proportion of the offspring. Their factors in the germ cells are either there or not there. Sometimes, at least, these unit characters arise as mutations, and thus we have an answer to Darwin's difficulty that abrupt changes would be averaged off in intercrossing. Unit characters do not blend. 7. Since Darwin's day there has been, in a few cases, definite proof of natural selection at work. The different forms of selection have been more clearly disentangled. The subtlety of Darwin's idea of selection has been confirmed. The reality and the efficacy of preferential mating has been much criticized. But Darwin's theory of sexual selection has in its essentials weathered the storm. In proportion, as new departures come about suddenly by brusque mutation, the burden to be laid on the shoulders of selection will be lessened. Insofar as the selection is in relation to a previously established system of interrelations, there will be a reduction of the fortuitous in the process, and the same will be true in proportion to the degree in which the organism takes an active share in its own evolution, as it often does. 8. Modern biologists are inclined to put more emphasis on isolation than Darwin did, meaning by isolation all the ways in which the range of intercrossing is restricted and close inbreeding brought about. When we use the term Darwinism to mean, not his very words, but the living doctrine legitimately developed from his central ideas of variation, selection, and heredity, we may say that Darwinism stands today more firmly than ever. It has changed and is changing, but it is not crumbling away. It is evolving progressively. This is only an outline of a great subject, and it is not an article that he who runs can read. It is very important to avoid dogmatism in regard to an inquiry which is still relatively young. There is not much scientific evolutionism before Darwin's day. 
the writer has not concealed his opinion in regard to such a question as the transmission of acquired characters, but it is not suggested that this is the only possible opinion. It may be recommended that readers to whom the subject is comparatively new, and to whom it appears full of uncertainties, should write out their ideas in a definite way, and then compare them carefully with the relevant paragraphs in the article. It is all too easy to go off on a wrong tack, and this should be guarded against by patient study, for the problems of evolution are fundamental. End of section 8